Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, Keeping Busy People Healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster. I'm a nutritional therapist based in Harley Street, London, specializing in extreme fat loss for busy executives and entrepreneurs. Being an entrepreneur myself, I like to find slick solutions to health problems. To help me with that mission today, we have the honor of having Mr. Andrew Jenkinson on the show. Mr. Jenkinson is a consultant, gastrointestinal and bariatric surgeon. He provides a full range of obesity surgery procedures, including gastric bypass, gastric band, sleeve gastrectomy and revisional bariatric surgery. Andrew performs approximately 200 weight loss procedures per year. And in 2010, Mr. Jenkinson founded the London Bariatric Group to help provide patients with a world-class weight loss surgery service in London. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Hi, Stephanie. That's quite an introduction. 200 procedures is quite a lot. I don't know how you get through it, but it's amazing. Uh, They don't take too long, actually. So they're not too onerous. Okay. So tell us why you chose the medical profession and what inspired you to specialise in obesity and weight loss. Well, so I guess I wanted to do a science-based um, career. Um, my A-levels are science-based, and then when I was looking through the university curriculums, um, it just sounded more interesting, more practical, uh, and I think it's a good choice. I certainly enjoy what I do. Okay. And why weight loss specifically? There's... So when I started in medical school, there was zero training about obesity. It's basically, it was the same training as anyone who read the seven, you know, go on a diet and go to the gym. Uh, and it's pretty much the patient's fault. But um, <clears throat> so, and bariatric surgery really wasn't certainly heard of uh, in the 80s. Um, so I didn't really come across bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery until my sort of later training. And I happened to be doing laparoscopic or keyhole surgery around the stomach, certainly uh, for cancers, gallbladder, and hernias. And uh, I got a job uh, in a unit that did bariatric treatment, but all then had to do the procedures, and uh, then really sort of fell into it and became an expert. And the more I did it, the more interested I became about the whole area of obesity and weight regulation. It's uh, a lot more complicated than uh, you sort of expect when you first, certainly more complicated than um, people assume. Yes, no, that's true. And there's a lot that goes into it. So some of my clients are slim and need to lose that last five kilos. Most are overweight and a lot are obese. Who would qualify for weight loss surgery and why? Um, So weight loss surgery would be indicated for people uh, who've got a body mass index of 40 kilograms per meter squared. Um, So body mass index is a uh, a measure that we use uh, really to sort of assess your height and weight, so your size basically, and it is uh, measured by your height in meters um, divided by your weight in kilograms squared. Uh-huh. So there's usually there's several apps that can calculate your BMI. If you're over 40, then you would qualify. If you're over 30 kilograms per meter squared BMI and you have diabetes, um, you would also qualify. So type 2 diabetes is um, intrinsically linked with obesity. Mm-hmm. And um, certainly if you have it, actually not only do you lose weight, but actually your diabetes goes into long-term remission. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that some of your clients just want to lose five kilograms. I mean, I, my, my experience of weight loss is most people want to lose between five and ten kilograms. And certainly they, they wouldn't be... Um, 
eligible for bariatric surgery. So when we talk about a BMI of 30 or 40, we're talking about people of average height who are maybe 16, 17 stone minimum. So they're, the guys who are really struggling with obesity. But someone who's struggling with a little bit of overweight wouldn't be qualified for bariatric surgery. The advice I would give to them, the main headline would be do not go on a calorie-restricting diet. Um, they tend to then affect your metabolism significantly, they slow down your metabolism, and there's a lot of research to suggest that actually that can, can slow down long-term. So the best thing to do is actually to actually look at the type of food that you're eating, the quality of food that you're eating, and trying to cut down on probably refined carbohydrates and sugar and go more to a traditional uh, way of eating. So less snacking and less um, Western-type food. Yeah, we advocate uh, natural whole foods. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. For most people, just uh, some simple lifestyle changes will be uh, okay to actually reset to five kilograms less. You know, like not just lose five kilograms and have to try and your best to keep it off, actually, to reset so your body is happy with five kilograms less. That's what you need to aim, aim for. I'm sure you advocate that. Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't uh, believe in eating processed foods and just giving your body what it needs and nothing that it doesn't need and uh, whole whole vegetables and um, yeah, lean meats. That's we just advocate your body just needs yes. just that and, and nothing more. And anything else is cultural uh, conditioning that we fancy yes. a bit of chocolate and we fancy a bit of this. But um, food, we believe that food is yes. fuel and you should only give your body what it needs. Um, so then we have to deal with everything else I've, i think the mind plays tricks on us and says oh well you know just a little bit of wine just a little bit of cheese and biscuits but ultimately that's not good news for the body so um yeah but we we condition yeah. we, we have a 12-week conditioning program where we help people re-establish their relationship with food and we look into the reasons why they're eating what they're eating and we make it effortless by the end of the program they, they just want to eat healthily naturally without any efforts whatsoever because they've changed as people inside out they, they become an athlete in their mindset um anyway so yeah one of the really um interesting things that i try and sort of reinforce in patients even if they're not qualified for surgery so if they are in that sort of lower uh, weight loss group uh is to it's okay telling people to eat vegetables, meat, fish, and, and some dairy products, but um, actually they're a bit boring. So you've got to really learn and actually get back into the kitchen and start enjoying cooking if you can, um, or certainly someone in the house should. And that's if you can do that, if you can really start to enjoy food again, uh, natural foods, then um, your sort of life will be enhanced and you'll lose weight. And that's the end way really of sustaining weight loss by doing something you, you want to do. Yeah, and actually we're developing a cookbook at the moment where we do take natural foods and we do jazz them up to, to stimulate the, the palate in in the way that our clients have been expecting. Yeah. But um, I, I also think that's a cultural problem that we demand from a tomato the same thrill as a, a can of Coke. And I, I think there's something interesting in enjoying food. Of course, we must enjoy food. Why not? But it, there's this idea of the food must deliver that level of excitement, pleasure, variety. And um, yeah, we, we just find that an interesting, uh, an interesting idea yeah. to explore. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway. Yeah, so. they, they, they do jazz their food quite well, really. I think probably uh, European uh, cooking, um, well, we, we could exclude the French, but um, <laughs> certainly UK cooking might be a little bit boring for the palate. But um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's great what you're doing. What's, what's your favourite cuisine, Mr Jenkinson? Well, I have to confess that I'm, um, I, there's a lot of evidence that saturated, but there's a lot of um, discussion out there suggesting saturated fat not only makes you fat but gives you heart disease. But I'm, I'm, uh, I'm opposed to that sort of traditional way of thinking. If you actually look into um, the evidence in history, the evidence actually saturated, natural saturated fat is great. So I love a fatty steak. Do you? I can imagine. But, <laughs> yeah, and coconut oil is saturated fat also and, and has been proven to help weight loss with the MCT oils in there. Um, shall we move on to the next question? Sure, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so there are many reasons why somebody might be obese. Psychological, cultural, environmental, endocrine disorders, medications, overeating. What are the main causes of obesity that you notice in your clinic? So I think if you look at... Obesity, uh, generally, the most, the strongest link to obesity really is genetic. So if you look at studies where um, twins have had to be separated uh, from their parents at birth and adopted into different families, if you look at identical twins, <clears throat> actually it doesn't matter what type of home environment they have, they tend to come out pretty much the same body mass index or weight, just as they would come out the similar height. So genetic uh, predisposition to obesity is probably the strongest, and that would account for um, between two-thirds and three-quarters. And that you can have those genes but be living in a, an environment where the population isn't obese, uh, and those genes won't be triggered. But if you happen to live in an environment where there is an obese population, such as people uh, environments where the food is sort of Western-type food, uh, then it's sort of almost preordained by your genetics and your environment that you're going to struggle. Yes. So I think genetics mainly, but then it has to be triggered with you living in an environment where, uh, you know, the population are obese because the food quality is terrible. So the fat gene does exist then, and we should pay attention to that. Well, there is a gene called the FTO gene, which is the one that's been strongest linked to obesity. But in actual fact, if you look at people who have that compared to people who don't have that, there's only a difference between of about two or three kilograms. So it doesn't make a massive difference. But I think the emerging research uh, suggests that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of genes that predispose to small levels of obesity, and they're sort of cumulative. Um, so yeah, it's it's not one gene; it's hundreds or thousands of genes. And why why do we overeat, particularly the the range five kilograms to ten kilograms, they just sort of nibble and munch and overeat. That they don't have obesity. Why do we overeat? Yeah. So we're wired really to overeat. Um, and if you sort of compare the energy regulating system with how much energy we store, it's sort of a little bit similar to the water regulating system of the body. So we all are hardwired to actually drink a little bit more fluid than we actually need. And then we excrete that by passing, passing water in a toilet. Um, so we're sort of wired, even, even 
So when there's abundant water, we will drink probably two liters naturally without trying. Uh, but we only really need less than one liter of water a day. And the same thing occurs with food. So we we can sort of get by probably on 1,000, 1,200 kilocalories a day, but we're hardwired to try and take in 2,000. Uh, now, in most people, uh, we're able to just metabolize that actually quite easily, that excess. But if you eat, um, if you send your body the wrong signal, so stress, um, poor quality food and high insulinemic food, then your body will just want to store a bit more fat. So um, it's actually quite good at regulating your body weights, but those signals, you know, stress, poor sleep, uh, poor quality food, um, will uh, will trigger the body to want to store more food. And it's not a simple question of calculating energy in and energy out. No, it's never so been as simple as that. To overeat a little bit, but actually we can metabolize that quite easily. But if the environmental signals to us are wrong, then we will want to store a little bit more food. Yeah, you said you that. Uh, yes, absolutely. That was very clear. And you mentioned high insulin mimic food. And would can we talk a yeah. bit more about that? I, I, I assume you're referring to Diet Cokes or... Um, no, well, so, yeah, I mean, there is that whole area of Diet Coke and, uh, and, and whatever, but basically if, I, if I'm in an endocrine clinic and I want to make someone um, grow or um, gain weight, <clears throat> I can just prescribe insulin, injections of insulin. If they're not diabetic and they take insulin, then they will gain weight. Um, in the same way, if you have a population that has consumes food that produces a lot of insulin as a side effect of it, i.e. sugar and refined carbohydrates, that population will gain weight because their average insulin levels are much higher. And um, that's really probably one of the main effects of um, the food environment on on our weight is via insulin. But you mentioned uh, Coke and the other, I think there is some evidence out there that when we drink a diet coke, we, our bodies sort of sense that we're taking in sugar because it tastes like sugar, and then produce we then produce some insulin, which then actually drives our sugar levels low and makes us crave um, a snack, a sugar snack. Yeah, that's yes, and so makes you want to eat. Let's talk through a case study where you had an obese patient. They tried everything. They came to you for surgery, and now they're their ideal weight. Okay, um, so I would say the average patient that comes to me, I mean, in, in, the, in my private practice, we get quite a few professionals who have really been struggling, getting on with their lives, uh, but it's been a constant sort of issue, their weight, and they tend to be between 100 and 120 kilograms, so sort of 18 to 20 stone. Um, so people that are really suffering, but actually going into the office, uh, sometimes quite high-powered executives, uh, and struggling, and they can sort everything else out in their life, but not their weight. And they've tried everything. They've gone on every single fad diet out there. They've been able to lose weight transiently, but always put it back on because, you know, unless you totally change your lifestyle, then it will always go back on. Um, so these people who, on average, would be 100, 120 kilograms, they come in, we have a chat, they see my nutritionist, dietitian, um, and uh, we'll either have one of two operations, either a gastric bypass or a sleepostrectomy. And within that, and the surgery itself takes about an hour, and they're in hospital for one day, and they take a week off work. So it's keyhole surgery, it's not actually too painful. Um, 
changing and that they will reset their weight from that sort of level of 100 to 120 to uh, probably 70 to 80 kilograms. And it's actually quite easy with just relatively sensible eating to maintain that much healthier body weight uh, for decades. So it does transform lives. Now, if you tried, for someone that weight, if you tried lifestyle intervention, it would be quite difficult. They may lose 5 or 10 kilograms, but they may not be able to get down from sort of 120 to 80 kilograms. Um, and there are physiological reasons for that. Leptin resistance is one, the main one. Mm-hmm. Leptin resistance, yeah. Uh, Shall I, I talk about that? Yeah. Uh, so what is leptin resistance? Tell us a bit more about that. So once when you go from sort of overweight to sort of full-blown obesity, um, the signals from your fat to your the weight control center in your brain stop working. So that signal is a hormone called leptin. So leptin is produced by your fat cells, like a hormone. Uh, the more fat you have, the more leptin there is in your blood. Um, the, the higher the blood level of leptin, and the higher the signal that actually you're okay, you've got enough fat to an energy store on board to last for a while. So your brain should sort of get it, um, get that signal, and realize you don't need to eat so much, and you can actually burn more off. If you lose weight um, and the leptin level goes down, the, if it's working properly, the signaling, then your, um, your brain automatically will want to increase appetite and decrease metabolism to sort of reset your weight back up to normal levels. So leptin is a signal. Now, if it's not working, it's a little bit like um, if you're driving along the motorway in your car and it's got a full tank, but the petrol gauge is not working, it looks like the tank is empty, even though it's full, you will, you will stop off at the next service station and try and fill up. It's the same thing with leptin resistance. You have a full tank, you are obese, you've got a lot of fat store on board, but the signal's not going through to the weight control center in your brain. So actually, despite being big, you're actually, um, actually more hungry than normal. So it actually produces, the leptin resistance produces uh, an increase in hunger. So when, so just the more obese you get, the more difficult it gets to control things. It's really like a vicious circle. That, it, it's almost so... I feel so much empathy for obese clients who are struggling and they put it back on. That is quite, it's quite hard to, to see. And you really do transform lives. That must feel very rewarding for you. How does it feel for you? It's just really good, actually. I mean, I just sort of fell into this field um, because I was in sort of area of like laparoscopic surgery and stomach surgery when bariatrics was becoming popularized. And, um, and now when I see my patients post-operatively, quite often I don't recognize them. They'll... they'll show me a photo of them, themselves before surgery um, because it does transform people. They come in much more confident, um, looking younger and uh, sort of like, like their young selves, they always say. So, yeah, it's, it is quite rewarding. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And do you see surgery as a last resort? And if so, what should we try before considering surgery? Yeah, I think you really, I mean, People should have tried lifestyle change. For some people, may be obese because they may not actually genetically be that predisposed, but their eating behavior may be so terrible that actually there is significant room for improvement. So if you are just snacking on um, sweet things and um, sort of cake, sweets, chocolate, ice cream, whatever, throughout the day, if you actually then change that around to eating healthily, then you may lose a significant amount of weight. Most people who are obese actually eat okay and have tried everything, you know, so there's not a great deal of leeway. 
to improve the, the quality of the, uh, the way they sort of eat and, and live. Um, but certainly, yeah, it should, it should be optimal lifestyle sort of change should be the first option. And how do you support your patients post-operation? Um, well, they, they do need a lot of support, um, but they need support available. So uh, we offer five-year follow-up and longer if they need it. But usually people are actually okay with just a, a bit of a chat every year. Mm-hmm. Um, there is dietetic and psychological support sort of on hand if people need it. It, that's amazing. I think that's really good that you support them afterwards. That that's really useful because this is a really large. It's a big decision. Uh, there are some units where it's sort of like um, you just have the surgery and that's it. But people do need uh, someone to help them occasionally. Yeah, and people have questions that need answering and uh, need answering sort of accurately so they don't get confused. Yes, and if somebody listening would like to make an appointment to discuss options with you, what are your contact details? So my name is Andrew Jenkinson, so if you just Google Andrew Jenkinson, you'll probably get my website, it's andrewjenkinson.com. My office is, naturally in the office is on 0754066 so they're the two best ways via the website or via naturally. That's amazing, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mr. Andrew Jenkinson, for investing your time in helping the Urban Health Podcast, keeping busy people healthy.